1: Hi, welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone coming to you from Macquarie Uni, where I'm a lecturer. I'm here speaking with Gregory Snyder, the author of Skateboarding LA, Inside Professional Street Skateboarding, a new book out with NYU Press in 2017. Hello, Greg. How you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk about your work. Uh, I just finished it this weekend. It was fascinating. So I'm wondering if we can uh, talk first a little bit about yourself. Can you tell me uh, how you came to become a sociologist and what got you interested in skateboarding?
0: Sure. Um, Excuse me. So. I was born in Germany in 1968 on an army base, and then we lived in upstate New York, and I went to undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, and then came to New York City um, in 1992 for graduate school. And that's kind of the answer to your question, which is that like the combination of graduate school and being in New York City. Um, is what led me to the path of being a sociologist. I initially went uh, to study liberal studies at the New School for Social Research. And during my time there, um, got interested and excited about some interesting sociologists, including Jose Casanova and Terry Williams. And it allowed me to sort of pursue sort of the things that I was experiencing in the academy and also the things that I were experiencing in my own life in New York City. And the way that I got into skateboarding, actually, and I'll just get this out right away, my brother, Aaron Snyder, who's my youngest brother, I have two brothers, one's Brian and one's Aaron, Aaron's eight years younger than me. And when I left for college, Aaron was like nine, 10 years old, and he had just started to get crazy into skateboarding, and he eventually became a professional skateboarder. And as a result of that, I was always following the career of my younger brother. So I actually started – the first thing I ever wrote about skateboarding was in 1996 when Aaron was filming uh, for a video part called Fulfill the Dream when he was on Shorties. So that was the the sort of initial entry into skateboarding. So I always kind of knew that I had this thing in my back pocket that I could – call on my brother to access that subculture um but actually I started writing about graffiti before I started writing about skateboarding and I was writing about graffiti because I was living in New York City and I was inspired by it and my graffiti research was my dissertation and then um, I started the skateboard book in 2008 formally and it's strange because even though I had started thinking about it you know in like 96 or whenever I mean, when I when it came time to really be like, okay, I'm working on this skateboard book, all of a sudden I didn't know anything. You know, like when you put your own knowledge, to the, yeah, when you put your own knowledge to the test, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, I, I know. I mean, I still don't know anything. I mean, I, I know a lot more than people who don't skateboard, but still, it's it's very daunting.
1: Yeah, I was uh, fascinated by this connection that you had with your brother and how how much we hear of his voice in particular you actually wrote at one point in your book i think in dakota that in some ways this is a a project that emerged out of both of your experiences which i think is um really great i wish my brother and i had maybe a a project that we could work on together but you you don't just can i come can I yeah, comment yeah. on that
0: for a second? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, of course. So first of all, it, yes. I mean, I'm so incredibly lucky, and it was so incredibly special to work with my brother on this project. But <clears throat> the the idea to make to give him uh, um, a larger presence, especially in terms of his voice, uh, I stole that from two places. I don't know if you're familiar with Mitch Gennier's book, Sidewalk. Okay, well, Mitch is a a longtime friend and colleague, and and Mitch wrote a great book called Sidewalk. It's about homelessness in New York City. And his key informant is a guy named um, Hassan. And Hassan writes an afterword in the book, and he's like really reflexive and talking about what it's like to be the subject of a study. And I always thought that was fantastic and that I was going to do that someday. And then I read Keith Richards' book, Life, and as Keith Richards would be rolling along, he would just be like, oh, we had this great time with uh, Ziggy Modalesti, but I'll let him explain it. And then he would get his friends to write. And so I was just kind of like, I think I can combine those two bits of thievery and, you know, get my brother to become a writer. He's a great writer. He's just one of those people who's like talented at writing, so they never work on it. So that was my idea for that.
1: I, I found that it totally worked in the book. I I'd, uh, I I want to come back to this in just a second, uh, because I was fascinated by some of the methods that you use. But I think for some of our listeners who haven't read the book, it might be um, important to start off by just having you tell us a little bit about what street skateboarding was, because while I, I'd seen skateboarding on television and was somewhat familiar with uh, some of the skateboarding terminology that you used, I really learned that street skateboarding is something very particular. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about just what street skateboarding is.
0: Sure. So first of all, street skateboarding is a bit of a misnomer, meaning it doesn't technically take place in the streets. It takes place on urban obstacles throughout the built environment. And street skateboarding emerged out of Uh, If I can back up, you know, there's the history of bowl skating or swimming in empty swimming pools. And then people skated on ramps, vert ramps, you know, Tony Hawk, that kind of thing. And the thing about that type of skateboarding, while unbelievably exciting, it's also very, you know, it's, it's specific to one locale. You have to be at the ramp. So in the late 80s, early 90s, There's sort of this democratizing influence where skaters who didn't have access to ramps began to skate on and reinterpret, creatively reinterpret, excuse me, creatively reinterpret urban obstacles in which to perform tricks. And very early on, they performed sort of basic tricks on curbs and whatnot. But nowadays, street skateboarding, um, and for at least the past 25 years, has been the most popular form of skateboarding in the world in part because it can be done anywhere in any city, but also because it is a <clears throat> sort of an act of urban exploration at the same time that it is a uh, a way of practicing the discipline of skateboarding. So street skateboarding occurs on handrails and downstairs and on benches and ledges. And it's um, I like to say that skateboarders view the city through a creative prism, in which they're looking at urban architecture um, as a possibility, as a way to find uh, a a new way to use something or somehow to uh, perform a trick on it. And there are specific sets of tricks that people perform. um, Yeah, street skateboarding is that street skateboarding uh, that takes place uh, on urban architecture all over the world. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, well, it definitely I think uh, decenters what maybe most people's view of skateboarding is, which is as you say, this kind of vert skating and Tony Hawk uh, that we that we see on television or that maybe we've played in video games, um, and and really puts it back into the built environment, and so maybe it gives us a, a a frame of reference for understanding what people are doing when they're skating in like a parking lot and. And you're wondering what what are they doing there? You know, hard to imagine them using. But when I read your book, I understood completely what they were doing. So I'd love to get back to this question of methods that we were just talking about. Now that we have a better, I think everyone will have a better sense of 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 what exactly we're we're interested in here. And, and I, I'm an historian, so obviously you coming from sociology. Uh, it's a actually I, kind of tool. I, have
0: a, I have a BA in history
1: oh nice well I'm I, I, uh, I could tell that you had a lot of historical background because of how you how you began your work with the history but you used a lot of techniques that I think most historians are are less familiar with and maybe some of our listeners are less familiar with I really like the kind of Gertzian thick description that you started the work with and then the deep kind of ethnographic work you did so I, I wondered is this the kind of practice, your general practice, or did you design this research method, or were you using these research methodologies specifically for this project or, or, and how, and how did you build out your community of people to talk to?
0: Okay. I think there are three questions there. The first question is, yes, it's my general practice, meaning that as an ethnographer, uh, it's my general practice, meaning that, um, I tried to come up with creative strategies for studying specific subcultures, and it is my intent that that practice will uh, have something to do with the subculture itself. So for example, when I did my first book on graffiti writers in New York City. Instead of just going and asking graffiti writers, hey, do you write graffiti? Blah, blah, blah. Well, first of all, it doesn't really work because you can't really approach a subculture that has a certain amount of secrecy and a certain amount of sort of in-group knowledge uh, as an outsider that doesn't work. And so what I did for that project is I took a sketchbook, something skaters, I mean, something graffiti writers call a black book, and I put a word at the bottom of each page, and then I would approach a graffiti writer and say, hey, I'm doing this project, and if you'd like to illustrate a word, then it will provide a baseline for us to have a conversation. And the writers thought that was pretty cool, and so we started that project and that led to deeper relationships. And so when it came time to start studying skateboarders, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to be like, hey, take me to see some skateboarding. Now, first of all, skateboarding is illegal. So that, like, while you're skating in California, the chances of the cops coming or getting kicked out, all of these other elements are are pretty real. So I knew that, like, no one was going to take this dumb, fat old guy skating. And so what I did is that I decided that the best approach would be to ask skaters to take me to photograph famous skateboarding landmarks, Um, going back to street skating earlier not only does it happen on elements of the built environment these are not random elements of the built environment some of them are landmarks and develop their own sort of history and so that way myself and a skateboarder very often my brother would go to a famous skateboarding place without skateboards only a camera and we would photograph the spot and what would happen is in that period the skateboarder would become the expert and would tell me why the place is significant. And so it almost became a a teaching tool, but in reverse. I was the student saying, oh, master, please tell me why these stairs are so important. And they would say, oh, well, you know, Andrew Reynolds did this particular trick here at this particular time, and that was followed up by that. And so that was the beginning of sort of um, my understanding of skateboarding, which was I started to understand, tried to understand skateboarding from a place perspective first because it was just so overwhelming to try to understand the tricks and the language and all of these various elements. And then the other part of your question was that um, I think sort of how I got to meet more skateboarders and this project took sort of eight plus years and throughout the course of it, I would go to LA normally once or twice a year um, and I would meet other skateboarders through Aaron. I would meet other skateboarders through social media. Um, and and that's how I sort of expanded um, the, the realm of the skaters that, that I had known. Aaron would introduce them to me, and they turned out to be amazing people. And, you know, truthfully, they became my friends. And so – Um, And in some ways, it was interesting because I'm significantly older than the people that I studied, and they were also very surprised that I was a college professor and that I was interested and knew a little something about skateboarding. So the other element of your question is that at the beginning of the project, I didn't talk to very many skateboarders at all because I was just so ignorant, and so I didn't know how to talk about the culture really. And it's sort of like the more I learned – then the greater access I had to be able to sort of just approach people. A lot of it went on during skateboard competitions um, in which my brother was a judge. So I would go to street leagues and I could walk up to skaters and be like, Hey, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I would have enough knowledge that at least the conversation could, could go someplace. And for the people that were interested in this project, and I have to say, I got a lot, a lot of support from the skateboarding community. For the people who were interested in that, that led to sort of further interviews and further experiences to 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 witness, to be a witness. I think is 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 how I would put it. Yeah, you, I, I could tell when reading the book how
1: it could be kind of difficult to break into this community. I, you you point out at the beginning, of course, that skateboarding is illegal, and you start with that great. Uh, story of uh, matt gutwig and trying to get the the shot before the cops show up uh they've been called already but then there's also this deep history of skateboarding and and of course the 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 inscrutability in some ways of the language of skateboarding which was extremely difficult and i I laughed every time you called something a switch nollie because i know i would have made the same mistake too
0: well, that's pretty, you know, since you said it, I will say it for those who have not read or are about to read a book, there's no such thing as a switch nolly. And the thing is, is that even though we're talking about the language of skateboarding, it's not that skateboarders speak a very terse slang that's impenetrable by other folks. What I'm describing when I'm talking about that is being able to understand and decipher skateboarding tricks and... Skateboarding tricks are based on a pretty logical grammar so that, you know, a frontside kickflip or a frontside flip is built on a frontside kickflip and and those types of things. And so, one, it's about recognizing the act, something that I still can't do 100% of the time and any 14-year-old skateboarder could do easily. Um, It's a big challenge for me. So, you know, as I said before, if I would have started the project on like, okay, I'm going to learn skateboarding tricks. Now I don't skateboard. I'm 40 years old or I was 40 when I started the project. And it's like, there's no way I wanted to start like learning to ollie and kickflip and, you know, falling was definitely a big deterrent. Um, But I also had studied a previous culture in which I was adamant about, like, you don't have to participate in the culture. Ethnography is about participant observation. And so, you know, I want to be, part of the conversation but i i i felt like i it was impossible for me to learn how to skateboard um which meant that i had to study in a very sort of specific way and the more that i studied the more that i learned then yeah those those particular elements and the reason there's no such thing as a switch nollie is because that's a fakie ollie (laughs) the rider is going backwards (laughs) and it appears that they're going forward switch but that's incorrect they're going backwards and so it is uh, it's sort of an inside joke amongst skaters uh you know if anyone says switch nollie it's clear that they're not part of the subculture or they're dumb and yes i've made that mistake a few times but everyone people were nice but still <laughs> well i think there's a lot i mean there's a surprising amount of
1: skating lingo that's entered into the mainstream and and it can give a sense for the first time reader of your book that I understand something. And then when I'm reading deeper, I'm like, well, maybe I don't, I don't get it entirely. And I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about this, which I think is a kind of one of the cores of street skating from my interpretation of your work, which is this ethos of progression, Yes, which I found so interesting. Okay.
0: Well, uh, progression, <clears throat> you know, there were a lot of similarities in, in the world of skateboarding to the world of academia and just how, the same way that none of us would ever attempt to write an unoriginal article or an unoriginal article would never find publication, the same thing in skateboarding. And so the ethos of progression is the idea that skateboarders are constantly trying to improve. And not only are they trying to improve in terms of the tricks that they're doing. So, you know, you can imagine a range of tricks you know, not on a tight continuum or a tight degree of difficulty, but, you know, a, 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 a spectrum of degree of difficulty, you know, for some people, you know, switch flips are harder than nolly flips or whatever. But in general, you know, there's a progression of tricks of difficulty. So you'd start with a simple ollie, which is just popping the board in the air. And then the next thing might, I, first of all, I say just popping the board in the air, it's absolutely impossible. It's a work of magic. There's no chance in my lifetime that I'll be able to ollie any more than like three millimeters. So, you know, when I say the simple ollie, understand that I'm speaking within the context of knowledge. It's like, you know, you're talking about a bunch of mathematicians and you're like, well, the simple formula. You're like, no, okay. that. So to be clear, yes, you go from an ollie to a kickflip to maybe... um a front side flip or or a 360 flip. And so there's always a harder trick you can do on a more difficult and dangerous obstacle. Um, so you can take existing obstacles. So I've been talking about um <clears throat> stairs in the 19 minutes we've been chatting. Um, there's a really special set of stairs called the Hollywood 16, which is in Hollywood, California in Los Angeles. And it's called the 16 because there are 16 stairs. And that's big for your listeners. It's about eight feet or so high. And there's also a hand railing that goes along those stairs. And so tricks are done down that set of stairs. And for the most part, any person that goes there is attempting to do an original, more difficult, that's been done before trick. So one of the ways that skateboarders talk about this, and this is part of the language that's not really trick related, and that's um, the terminology NBD, never been done. And so progression is about going to a special spot and attempting an NBD, something that no one's ever been done before. Um, And so, I mean, lately, the speed with which skaters have been progressing, especially because with social media, they can disseminate. You know, their activities so quickly and so pervasively. Um, Someone did a laser, or who was that? Uh, Deshaun Jordan did a laser flip down the Hollywood 16, which, if I describe in my book a 360 flip, which is basically spinning the board 360 degrees on the X and Y axis at the same time. A laser flip is doing it the opposite way and with your heel, so it's it's it's, it's yeah you, you, that's progression. You're like what? While while flying down six yes. steps and, and, in the and, air, and and, and 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 let me tell you, it's not f- no progressive or no NBD as it were happens on first try, except of course for Jamie Foys crooked grind down the El Toro, but most of the time these young people are landing on concrete, rolling, getting back up and doing it again. And that's the most amazing thing on two levels. One is that, like, the amount of dedication it takes to land on the concrete and get up and try again. But also, like, skateboarders don't skate outside of themselves. They don't normally attempt things that they think they can't do. And they also have, you know, if you're going to skate a three, you know, a Sixteen stair, you've done three, you've done ten, you've all done all these different things during your life. You know, you learn that falling, you learn those things. So, you know, I talk about it in the book. There's this one trick that Andrew Reynolds did, which is called a varial heel flip. Uh I hope I'm getting that right. And I watched a video of it, it took him seventy-five tries. That means he fell seventy-four times. (laughs) Like, oh. So it's it's pretty incredible yeah i
1: i uh, uh thinking of just a word that's entered the mainstream from skating maybe is gnarly yeah. you
0: know? that is definitely that is reading. definitely gnarly
1: <laughs> yeah reading about some of these tricks and and I think you're able to get in it not only through um some of the different types of testimonials that you have both from your brother and from other people's comments but uh also from your own writing, you're really able to get inside the heads of some of these skaters and to imagine a little bit what it might be like to try a trick again and again and again, each time falling, maybe coming back to a, a spot four or five times before you're able to land the trick and what kind of pressures might lead you to do that. Uh, it's just a, an an incredible thing, but it strikes me that, you know, ABD, NBD, so already been done, never been done. The This ethos of progression turns every, every serious skater into a kind of, into a kind of expert and historian of their own culture. Absolutely, you can't really be a skater without having this knowledge, right?
0: That is fantastic insight in your part. On your part, and but I'm drawing it from. Oh, your I know, book. I know. <laughs> but 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 that's a great insight. But I think I should add. Well, I was going to say it's reflective of, of of yourself as a historian, and it's critically important for people to have knowledge of their own culture. And 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 I didn't really study the dissemination of of those things as much as I would have would have liked to in terms of, you know, there are mentoring relationships for skateboarders. There's video record. They can go back and look, they can study, but it's also the case that the filmers, the documenters, the film and the photographers, the filmers and the photographers are also oftentimes the, the, the carriers of this subcultural knowledge. So even if, if the skater, you know, you might have a young up-and-coming skater who's going to be like, oh, I'm going to do this at this particular spot. And the filmer would be like, yeah, and then you'd be just like so-and-so who did that, you know, 10 years ago or something like that. So I think that there's probably a process that go- – I I can sort of say that there's a process that goes on where sort of younger skaters imagine what they may or may not do. And then they find themselves sort of having to come to grips with the, the historical legacy of the thing that is skateboarding. And I think that that part that you just described is that, um, there is a self-conscious knowledge about the importance to skateboarding history, um, for lots of skateboarders with every trick they do you know uh that's that's where progression comes from but the other thing i wanted to say about progression is that it's not just the skateboarders who are interested in progression the filmers are interested in progression the writers and the journalists are interested in progression the the people who make the skate parks are interested in progression And so this culture is is self-consciously trying to innovate new ways or not not new ways excuse me to self-consciously improve, to self-consciously add to this to the discussion, or you know, they're aware that they're standing on shoulders, uh, or if they're not aware that they're standing on shoulders, someone lets them know.
1: Yeah, I, I was fascinated in your book about uh, how this group of people, these these skateboarders. I think most most uninformed readers, like I, I, I was. You you think about skateboarding. And because of its potential links to criminality, and I think um, we can dispel some of those by going, they're being criminalized rather than they're being criminals. <laughs> um, we, we tend to think of them as being kind of rule-breaking and and rebels. But in fact, there's a there's a kind of strict hierarchy within the skating community in some ways between these groms and, and more senior skaters. And that there is a a, a way in which the skate community really thinks of itself as unified and works together to pursue certain goals. Um, And I think that that's one of the major, that was what I was reading as one of the major claims of your work, that skating is not just about resistance uh, or or not mainly even about resistance, but also about the building of this community and, and that this community itself is really linked to these issues of professionalism, of capitalism. And you even say in some ways, uh, all all street skating is kind of like advertising, which I found really interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not so proud. No, I I I think I wrote that uh, everything that a particular skateboarder publishes is an act of branding, and right and, and, similar. And, similar. Yeah, yeah, and and I feel a little dirty when I say that, and I think that the the skaters themselves also you know um, know that I'm saying that uh, somewhat tongue in cheek, but. Right. Going back to your last question, there, there's a lot there in the idea of resistance. And so my first book, Graffiti Lives, was on graffiti writers. And I'm an ethnographer. And as I started to to delve into the theoretical components of what it meant to study a subculture, I uh, <clears throat> I came up against the Birmingham School, which for folks that don't know... Uh, it, yeah, you'll have to
1: explain that because okay. I think probably many of our listeners don't who aren't sociologists, won't know what you're talking about. Well, yeah.
0: So, so so, quickly, in 1974, in Birmingham, England, a group of scholars who generally have come to be known as the Birmingham School, um, guys like Stuart Hall and Tony Jefferson and Brian Roberts and Paul Willis to a certain degree, they established a Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. And this was sort of a, a an attempt to study Working class subcultures uh, from sort of a Marxist semiotic bent, and that doesn't that part doesn't have to matter to, to general listeners. What what you should understand is that their conclusion. Oh, I should say that they studied uh, Teddy Boys, who we would sort of understand as rockabilly folks. They studied punk. They studied mods, um, and their conclusion was that these working class folks engaged in spectacular acts of symbolic resistance. And it's interesting. So as a result of that, a lot of people who studied subcultures, especially music subcultures, would study them like, oh, okay, so this is resistance against the capitalist imperative that you have to consume this or that or in this way. And I just found that even though the culture that I was working in, graffiti, was obviously resistant in some form, uh, for the pers- from the perspective of the people that did it, they didn't see what they did as resistant. So uh, there's a line in the famous book by Stuart Hall and Tony Jefferson. And oh, I should say that while I critique the Birmingham School a lot, Tony Jefferson is a dear, dear friend of mine. And uh, I met him you know, all- right before the book came out and essentially was like... Asked for his blessing, Don, Don Tony, and uh, no, we turned out having the ball. Yeah, when we still hang out and look at music and study subcultures together. But um, there's a line in that book that says that symbolic resistance can't alter the structural um, the structural impositions of working class life. They say there is no subculture career, and I was like, I think there is. And so I was witnessing sca- or graffiti writers. Excuse me, I was witnessing graffiti writers going from you know being criminalized vandals to transitioning into full-time artists and these types of things, uh, either as professional graffiti writers or as graphic artists or as even fine artists. And so the first sort of element of that was that okay, people who participate in subcultures the thing that they want to do most is continue to participate in the subculture and so the only way that you can do that as you get older is to find a way to make that your career i originally titled the book youth culture adult career but this happens all the time if you look at like you know people that ride bmx bikes or people that ride dirt bikes or people who are into cars you know mechanics are essentially an outgrowth of the subculture career so when I started studying skateboarders, I mean, skateboarding had had their own sort of industry. And Ocean Howell, shout out to Ocean Howell, uh, who's a former prof- legendary professional skateboarder and also uh, he's an associate professor in architectural history. Uh, he's sort of commented that skateboarding presented its own circuit of capital so that the skateboarding industry produces skateboarding content for skateboarders to consume. Again you can see the analogy to the to the academy um, and so i I knew that like the argument about the subculture career could be expanded on and what I started to understand is that as skateboarders started to build up a certain amount of economic power as a result of their subcultural careers um that power could be translated actually into a form of politics so Rather than the politics of subculture being merely symbolic, the politics of subculture is really basic, meaning that if you participate in a subculture, especially one in which criminalize, you're going to create strong bonds of social cohesion, and those strong bonds of social cohesion are going to come in handy when it comes time to build community that can be beneficial for your own culture. And so I saw this happening in Los Angeles with the West Hollywood courthouse. And this was a very famous spot and Nike was about to revamp the spot and, and sort of own it for a day and then make skateboarding illegal again. And my brother, Aaron Snyder and Alec Beck and others <clears throat> um, really, really engaged in some grassroots community organizing to basically um lobby the West Hollywood Neighborhood Council and its chairman, Jay Handel, to allow skaters to use this space. And so that was a really um, impactful thing that happened during the course of the book. And that began around 2014, 15, 16. So the the aspect of subculture that I, I or sort of the the new element that really clipped for me was this idea that once you can sustain yourself, that your first goal is self-sustenance. And then after that, it's possible to build community. I mean, maybe the word sounds a little bit much, but uh, to achieve some sort of legacy, I guess. And so skaters were able to lobby the local government to decriminalize a space that for them for at least a decade and a half had been um you know they would get tickets there for skating and now they can skate there during off business hours legally it's just it's pretty beautiful
1: yeah the story of the west la courthouse as as you tell it i think is really a a fascinating account of how you can have this subculture that can generate its own kind of activism and in Skating sub- subculture in particular, maybe, as you as you point out, driven by as much as it is by social media, was especially able to organize. It seemed very quickly. I, I know if we tried to get our own academic subculture together in, in two or three days, that would never happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think it goes back a little bit to the hierarchy you were talking about before. I don't mean the hierarchy. I mean the, the code of ethics. And so you know, if the, if the biggest names in skateboarding say, okay, we're not going to skate this for 30 days. And for those, you know, part of the story is that, you know, the, the skaters successfully lobbied and said, Hey, listen, we'd like to have this back, you know, and the, the neighborhood council came back and was like, listen, it's going to take us some time. And so it took, it, it took, you know, 30 plus days to get this all worked out. But during that entire time, Nobody skated it, so you know it had been given a complete makeover, repainted, iron or you know metal ledges put in, all of this, and it just laid there dormant without a single skateboarder. And I think that that, and I wasn't the only one to say this. Alex Beck, who was one of the uh, main spokespeople um, for the skaters, I mean for him, that was also one of the most impressive parts. They said, "Hey, nobody skated, and nobody did." And so I think that it's, it's an important – I don't want to overstate it, but to me it was a, it was a powerful show of strength. Um, but, I mean, sadly, it hasn't generated all that much activist momentum. What it generated was um, skating momentum, which is that as soon as the courthouse was open, for example um, – Nick Tucker, one of my colleagues and, 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 excuse me, one of my contacts and one of my friends, um, you know, he was able to, to perform four never-been-done-before tricks for his, you know, video part, so without harassment. And so, you know, it pushes the culture that way. And I guess, you know, if another set of circumstances come up, um, skateboarders will be ready to, to to hopefully take that opportunity. But I know that there are a bunch of folks trying to think about other spaces that they might try to reclaim.
1: Another thing that kind of struck me is, as as um, maybe unique about skate the skating subculture is how much of it is still controlled by skaters. I think when when you're talking about Birmingham school, part of the part of the I think what you were trying to attack is this idea that, that ultimately these subcultures are self-defeating because as soon as they generate, they become capitalized or commercialized and then undermined as, as commodities, right? But that doesn't happen in skating because skaters, in some ways, are are responsible or, or take responsibility for their own for their own productive activities. And you really talk about these videographers, especially as kind of the gatekeepers uh, of skating. So I, I thought that was really fascinating and I wondered if you could tell us a little more about that.
0: It's interesting because I'm not suggesting, or yes, you rightly right. I, right. I'm, I'm suggesting that skating is unique in that. I, That's not your suggestion. Oh, okay. Well, I think a lot of subcultures do that, but I think that, you know, for the most part, there, there, there are two sets of conventional wisdoms at work. One the conventional wisdom from the Academy, which is that people participate in a subculture for a period of time as they're young people. And so, you know, they participate in punk rock and then all of a sudden corporations are like, punk rock is cool and they put it on a t-shirt and they start selling it and making money. And once that, once that has happened, you've been co-opted. And so your symbolic resistance is no longer resistant. Right? Okay. Well, punk rock still exists. And for many people, the experience of having their own imagery, symbolism, codes co-opted has actually put them closer together. There's a good book by a guy named Dylan Clark where he talks about uh, the death of punk rock actually is the birth of punk rock, meaning that, like, you know, punk kids all over the world fully understand that the thing that they create is cool, and so they're constantly in this negotiation between, you know, the things that are becoming part of sort of corporate culture and skateboarding has, you know, even from the time that I began studying it in the eight years that I was studying it, like this question, this negotiation between like um, skateboarders call it core versus corporate. So core would be sort of the hardcore skaters and corporate would be, you know, Nike. So, Nike sponsors over 30 skateboarders and some of the, you know, the biggest skateboarders in the world. Um, But I'm going to say all of the board companies, all of the board companies are owned by skaters, either current or former skateboarders. And so what happens is that you have this sort of two-tiered level, like this constant negotiation, right? So it's like, I'll ride for Mountain Dew But I'm also, you know, riding for Primitive Skateboards and Diamond Shoes, right? Primitive and Diamond being both sort of core skateboard companies. And yes, you also get sponsorship by Mountain Dew because you need the extra money. I mean, not extra. I mean, you need the money to survive. And so, you know, I'm a little, I'm a lot uh, hesitant to sort of think about the ways, in some, the ways in which something, especially something that young people do, is either completely co-opted or completely resistant. I find that that binary is very, is very reductionist in terms of trying to understand how subculture works, you know. Um, subculture is very much, I mean, skateboarding is very much co-opted. I mean, like, I can, can't walk down a New York City street without seeing kids wear Vans or Thrasher t-shirts, at the same time, and those kids never skateboard, but at the same time um there are skateboarders that can make good careers for themselves and be very well respected and and never mess with any of the larger you know corporations so rather than sort of this you know it's not like a a, a flat out resistance model it, you know it's not like resistance or co optation as much as it's like. You know, where is this negotiation? What can I live with? Each particular skateboarder is going to have to deal with their own set of opportunities and 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 what it is that they want to do, uh, especially if they want to survive.
1: Yeah, I I think you really get into that actually with Nick uh, Turner's Tucker, Tucker. I'm sorry, um, his uh, his attempts to become a pro uh, skater and and. To, difficulties in becoming pro and the the sacrifices that skaters need to make to become pro and and the the i don't want to say use the word compromises um but maybe the 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 nuanced uh processes of of of, of how professionalism actually happens because of course everyone wants a board contract but you you mentioned that i mean some, sometimes even a board contract really isn't enough to survive so you have to seek out different opportunities different branding opportunities
0: well there's two elements there first of all i want to say shout out to nick tucker uh his signature shoe just came out about two months ago uh for diamond supply um i don't know that many of our listeners are in the market for skateboard shoes but uh (laughs) you should go buy them and help nick out no i'm kidding
1: if you are in the market for those shoes, you should check these out. Yes. Highly recommended. Yes, it. he
0: was nice enough to send me a pair and they're I cannot imagine what I mean, I love sneakers, so I'm a knucklehead. So I mean putting on a pair of sneakers with my own name on it, I mean it was fun enough to put on a pair of sneakers with my friend's name on it. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. So um remind me where we were. Sorry, I know
1: <laughs> I, I, notes. No, no problem. I was just saying, you know. I was I was uh, continuing on from your comment about how this isn't just about resistance that actually one of the great things about your work is how you can you get in to try to understand how skaters are making decisions about about becoming more of a brand and, and, and in some ways self-consciously, even as they reject some of the commercialism of their own of, of their own market, they also are building a community in which a lot of people, not just the skaters themselves, but uh, the videographers, the editors, uh, etc. I think at one point in time you talked about one movie in which there were 119 people employed in in the production of this movie and only three of them were not former skaters
0: or current skaters, which is incredible. Yeah. I mean, it gives you a sense of the scale. Um, You know, there are – skateboarders make – you know, aesthetic choices about the stuff that they're into. And sometimes those aesthetic choices get co-opted. But more than not, those things are moving at a rate which, you know, a corporation couldn't really keep up with. There's only one corporate-owned skateboarding brand, Zoo York, and, you know, they've got an interesting history or a legacy. But, you know, for the most part, it's the – the brands that are run by skaters that become the tastemakers within the community. And then, you know, groups of skaters, there are skaters that like get together and start a beer company. (laughs) There's, you know, there's all sorts of things.
1: I'd like to know more about that company.
0: (laughs) It's called St. Archers and it was started by Mikey Taylor and Paul Rodriguez to a degree. And, um, a guy who was a former surfer. I can't remember his name. I think it was Josh. And basically they just, it kind of happened on a, a serendipitously. And uh, yeah, the, 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 beer was a huge hit and uh, they sold the brand to some larger folks and uh, had a very nice payday. And so it's, you know, the idea that skateboarding is somehow resistant to capitalism um, is, is it's mythical. And you know I'm not certainly sitting here saying like you know um, that, that 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 every single impact of corporations onto you know the skating subculture, no those have been you know. Sometimes travesties, sometimes jokes, you know, whatever. Like Axe Body Spray has sponsored skateboarders. Nike's first go-around, uh, they didn't do a very good job. I mean, lots of other companies, you know, the Navy is, is, is uh, promoting skating. So, like, it's huge. I mean, they're, it's like an estimated $5 billion a year business. Um, I don't know how they come up with that. But, yeah, go ahead.
1: I was going to say there is something about it though that's still kind of um, outside of that system though, and 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 one of the parts or one of the things in your book that I found most interesting was this idea of of skaters as kind of guerrilla urbanists who see the urban world differently with an architectural sensibility, and I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that. I saved it for the end because I, I wanted to hear you
0: go on about it because I I love that part of the book. Well. Thank you. I I mean, I like that part of the book, too. I mean, I, I came to this project as an urban sociologist. And my original intent was, you know, as I said before, was not to attempt to learn how to skateboard at all. But I wanted to learn how to see the city differently. I wanted to learn how to see architecture, not for what it is, but for what it could be. And so... When I talk about guerrilla urbanism, um, that's not my term. Guerrilla urbanism comes from uh, a scholar named Jeffrey Howe, H-O-U. But I think I called uh, skateboarders guerrilla architects, which I guess I'm saying that um, one of the things that really fascinates me about skateboarding or street skateboarding in this sense that we're talking about it is that skateboarders are not only – reinterpreting the world but they're interpreting things that are meant to be mundane meant to be banal no architect is like check out this beautiful flourishing set of 16 scares that i've just created they're like the stairs are going up to this place where this is awesome and instead the skateboarders are like no 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 no, no. this thing right here is beautiful this thing can be you know This is perfect for skateboarding. You can jump down it, you can jump on the rail, you can do these things. And so I was really fascinated by the way in which skateboarders would interpret architectural forms. And you know, when I first started studying skating, I would try to interpret those architectural forms too. And as I say in the book, there were numerous times where I would get it wrong. So I would be like, Oh, look at this, you know, could could somebody skate on this? and my friend RBU Molly or, or Aaron, I would text them and they would be like, no, that's not skatable at all. And so trying to understand the things that were what skaters call skatable and the things that aren't, I mean, requires a specific understanding of skateboarding tricks and skateboarding techniques um, and also, you know, the history of skating on some level. And so... You know, there's a couple things that I think are really fascinating for me in terms of how skateboarding relates to urban sociology. And one of those ways is that skateboarders tend to map their city according to the places where they can skate. And since the places that they can skate are architectural accidents, there's no sort of – sort of conventional mapping technique, you know? So urban sociology for a long time would have like the center and things would move out from the center where, you know, the industry and and finance was located in the center and you'd move out from those things. Well, skating mapped their city completely differently. Over here, there's this set of stairs. Over here, there are these ledges. Over here, there's this school that has this particular terrain. And so building up this knowledge of an urban space and, and, You know, this urban space is not just confined just to Los Angeles. It's basically the world, you know. You can ask any skateboarder in Los Angeles, you know, if they've ever been to Makba, and they would say, oh, yes, of course. Now, Makba is the Museum of Contemporary Art Barcelona, which has marble uh, ground and ledges and all this beautiful stuff, and it's become legendary for skaters. And so – and Barcelona is a cool enough place in which they allow – skateboarding legally there. And so, you know, the the way in which skateboarders have made discoveries or have made have made regular places, places that were thought of as not very special, and that their activity in those places have made those things special, I think really teaches us about the way in which Seeing a world through a different creative prism can teach us something about that world, and I think in some ways that can be generalized to a lot of things. I mean for the most part, if you 're just walking around and you see somebody skateboarding, chances are you 're going to see them fall, and you 're like that looks dumb, but if you know all the elements that are going on and how this particular thing is reinterpreted, um, I think it makes it for me at least it makes it very exciting to be a citizen, even of my own city here in New York because. In my daily travels, I ride my bike, I walk around. Um, I'm now – oh, there goes a motorcycle. I'm now looking at the world from a a different perspective. Like, oh, wow, look, that could be skated. And that teaches you something about architecture. And yet it also teaches you something about the way in which architecture is utilized as a a technique of social control. Because skateboarding is clearly saying, even though you say we can't do this here or – let's give it a try and basically see how long it takes for someone to say that you can't do that here. And so for me, skateboarding winds up being a really democratic practice where you're like, well, this is public space. I'm a public citizen. I have chosen to interpret this particular thing in this way. And I'm going to enact uh, uh, my creativity and my, courage and my skill set on this particular form of architecture. And I just, I just find that to be so fascinating. Yeah. I, I thought it was, I know that's great. I, I was
1: really intrigued by the idea too, of skateboarders is kind of both, um, you know, I think we have a sense of skateboarding as being publicly destructive. Although I, I, I'm, I, I tend to, once I read your book, I was like, wait a minute. So how does this skateboard really, Destroy so much public pro- property, <laughs> uh, but
0: well, that's exaggerated. I mean, it does destroy it on some level, but I mean, you know, how many times walking up the stairs and with the handrail do people, you know, those things are made pretty right. that's well? What I was thinking. <laughs> so
1: and then, I'm and thinking. then I'm reading your book and I'm like, well, in a lot of cases, skateboarders are actively creatively reconstituting our public spaces by removing some of these obstacles that don't allow people to sit or spend time in them or fixing them even using Bondo to, to resurface and to recreate smooth public spaces that people might want to spend time in.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that I forgot about. Like, yeah, I, I would say that rather, well, in addition to being destructive, it's also productive and it's productive on, on numerous levels. One, this, the spaces that are special or have special potential, uh, the skaters become stewards of those spaces. And as I write in the book, like they fix them up. They, they smooth them out. Yeah, they use a substance called Bondo, um, which is used for, you know, car body uh, repair. They use it for Bondo. They repair the spots. They do all of these things to make something skatable. Um and not only that, they're adding. You know, I don't want my language to be uh, too economic, but they're adding value to a place. And the way that they add value to it is that, you know, for example, a, a a famous set of stairs will be known to the entire community, and more people will come to that place. And more people come to that place, they're also sort of they're engaging in economic activity. They're going to a specific area. They're eating lunch there. They're spending money on drinks there. And it's like no one in the world ever would have thought that, uh, you know, a set of stairs at a Hollywood school would become internationally renowned. And it's very strange how those things happen. But also, I think, very exciting. I mean, you read in the book, you know that I have, like, there's a company called Target that makes toys out of these skateboarding places. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, it was uh – it was really fascinating, and I, I think you also make the point in your book, and uh, that skateboarding in some ways brings a lot of economic activity, specifically to LA, because people move to LA to create this community. I, I, I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your time here, Greg. Uh, so I, I think as a last question. Um, I want to ask you about what your next project is so our listeners can maybe get excited about what that's going to be too.
0: Oh, well, that would be nice. Um, I'm I'm currently working on a project where I study people who ride track bikes in the city, specifically New York City. So for those that don't know, a track bike is a bike that has a fixed gear and it was traditionally used to ride uh, on velodromes or tracks. Um, But messengers in New York City and elsewhere going back quite a ways um, started um, using track bikes to ride and to messenger in the streets in part because they're cool, but also because they only have one gear and they have no brakes. And so the, there's very little maintenance that you need to do on these particular bikes. And this scene has emerged um, in part, uh, the, the neighborhood that I live in here in Brooklyn is called Red Hook. And for the past 10 years going on 11, Um, uh, a fixed gear crit race, which is a a race on a criterium or a circuit has been happening here in Red Hook. And it's expanded to four different cities, London, Barcelona, and Milan. Uh, This has expanded into this whole huge uh, emergence of former bike messengers becoming, um, attempting to become part of the larger community that is uh, professional cycling. And so... In part, I'm I'm studying now the emergence of a new discipline or the emergence of a sport, but a sport in which, um, a sport in which so many people previously didn't have the opportunity to participate because of the high costs. I mean, if you want to be a bike racer, you need to have a really expensive bike, and so the the messenger or the track bike or the fixed gear community uh, here in New York City and in lots of other communities uh, around the country and around the world. Um, you know, provide access into this world of, of bikes. And so I like to say I'm studying um, current and or former messengers who ride track bikes and race them with the hope of becoming possibly part of the larger community, which is uh, professional cycling in any form, either in the industry or something along those lines. But, um, yeah, I've met some really great people. Uh, people in the past year, um, who have, interestingly, um, I learned I, my access into this subculture was through podcasts. There's a podcast called, uh, cat six cheese, Mez, uh coming out of here in New York city. And it's run by, um, uh, run by my man, Jason Cologne and Gabe electronica. Um, and they talk about the track scene here in New York. And when I, I, I got a track bike and I was interested in learning more about it and I found this podcast and all of a sudden this whole culture opened up to me and I'm just um, still at the beginning stages of it. I haven't yet um, figured out the theoretical significance of it, but... I consider it a, a real privilege of my job to be an ethnographer and to be able to explore subculture and that, that people share their lives with me. And so right now, there's a whole bunch of cyclists coming back from uh, Mission Crit in San Francisco. And uh, I'm glad that there were no uh, big accidents or anything. That was real exciting. And the Red Hook Crit is happening uh, next weekend uh, right here. So I'm going to have a lot to write about. But um yeah. I'm excited about this project, but you know, as a writer, I'm also like, Oh my God, I can't believe I got another project to write. <laughs> so, you know, like, oh really more writing to do. Oh my goodness. But, um, well that's our subculture, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, I mean, I don't, yeah, it's, I suppose, but, um, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for
1: uh, joining us, uh, Greg and, uh, For those of you um, here to the end, uh, this is Keith Rathbone. Uh, I'm a lecturer at Macquarie University. I'm here for new books in sports, and we've been talking with Gregory Snyder, the author of Skateboarding in L.A., Inside Professional Street Skateboarding. I I encourage all of you to pick up a copy of this book. It's in paperback now from uh, New York University Press. 2017 Uh, it's a really great read if you've ever wanted to know anything about skateboarding especially street skateboarding this is the book for you thank you again for joining us Greg. thank
0: you i hope to see you soon take care